Hello, welcome to Jane and Jesus, where my guests and I talk about all things Jane Austen, and I talk a little about Jesus. A lot of people don't know that Jane Austen was a serious Christian and that her novels have a lot to teach us about not only the Christian faith, but also life wisdom too. I'm your host, Karen Swallow Pryor, and on this final episode of season one of the podcast, we'll be talking about the star of our show, the heroine of Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth Bennet. Joining me for this segment is William Derezowitz, author of A Jane Austen Education and the more recent book, The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So this is an interesting fact about my library, which is very voluminous and unorganized, but I actually was looking for my copy of your wonderful book, Bill, A Jane Austen Education. And as I was looking for it, I realized that I actually have two copies. And not only do I have two copies, but both copies are marked up. So my markings you know, are kind of all over the place. So uh, you have a, a prominent double place in my library. Hey, and- that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Your book is so delightful. Its complete title is A Jane Austen Education, How Six Novels Taught Me About Love, Friendship, and the Things That Really Matter. And I love how you tell your story of coming of age and grappling with love, grappling with your family history through the novels of Jane Austen. And of course, today we're focusing primarily on Elizabeth Bennett of Pride and Prejudice. And what you write about that novel, and I'm going to read an excerpt in a minute, but what you write about Pride and Prejudice really reminds me of a popular piece of biblical wisdom for Christians. And I'm just going to read that verse written by St. Paul in 1 Corinthians. And he says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish things. And a lot in your book is on that theme, especially the chapter focused on pride and prejudice. And I want to read one of my favorite passages of yours from your book. You write, the novel I saw wasn't finally about prejudice or pride or even love. Elizabeth was all of 20 and her mistakes were errors of youth. The mistakes precisely of a person who has never made mistakes or at least who has never been forced to acknowledge them. Beneath the polished wit that she flashed at the world like a suit of armor, Elizabeth was still scarcely more than a girl. And I'm skipping down to my favorite line from this chapter in your book. Growing up may be the most remarkable thing that anybody ever does. That's amazing. It's so true. So can we talk about that a little bit in terms of of Elizabeth Bennett and Pride and Prejudice, but also in terms of the kinds of things that you draw out in this book about what you learned from her in this novel? First of all, it's great not just to be here talking to you, but great to be talking about everybody's favorite character and everybody's favorite Jane Austen novel, if not any novel. She is a remarkable creation. She's remarkably compelling. And Part of what's so clever about the way Austen constructs the novel is that, you know, we are immediately and irresistibly on Elizabeth's side, right? 
I mean, some of the other heroines are a little hard to take. I think Emma's a little hard to take. I think Fanny, in other ways, is a little hard to take. But, you know, everybody falls in love with Elizabeth immediately, which only makes mm-hmm. the fact that Darcy doesn't somehow even more incomprehensible, makes him even worse. So, you know, she's confident, but she's not, she's not arrogant. She's loving. You know, we see that especially in the way she extends herself for Jane. Of course, she's immensely witty and self-aware in a sort of delightful way not self-aware in other ways, but, you know, sort of aware of her surroundings, the way she jokes around with her father about other people. So it's easy to forget that she's a kid. She's a girl. I think it's always easy to forget how young Jane Austen's heroines are because we grow up so much more slowly now. And even the men in the novels grow up more slowly. I mean, typically they're sort of in their late 20s when the marriage has happened. But yeah, she's a, she's a, a child, in a sense, an adolescent who doesn't know how much she needs to grow up. And I think it also needs to be said, I mean, I don't know how true this was necessarily in Austen's world, the real world, it may well have been true, but how the circumstances of these young women's lives, the young age and the rapidity with which they arrange their marriages or the marriages are arranged for them, means that they have to grow up really fast like really fast. And I think it makes that, it sort of heightens the drama of that process, but it also heightens the, the stakes of that process. You know, like they're, they're still practically kids and they are being required by their society to, by their families also, to make the most important decision of their lives. Who, who are they going to marry? Who are they going to really surrender their liberty and fortunes to. Can you talk a little bit more about what you just said about how we grow up even more slowly today? I think that's true. And I think there's a lot to unpack there. Can you expand on that a little bit? Oh, sure. And I don't think this is necessarily a criticism of us. I mean, we have a lot more business to take care of when we're growing up. I mean, Unlike Jane Austen and her heroines, we live in a society, a technologically advanced society, but that means in particular that, you know, especially people who aspire to the middle class or upper middle class need to get a lot of education. You know, we need to go to college if we want to have decent job prospects. Many people do advanced degrees for the same reason. As knowledge accumulates and specializes, gets more and more specialized, there's more and more that you need to learn. And so just for that fact, you know, it can take well into your 20s, if not longer, to complete your schooling. And of course, all of this is now available to women, whereas in Austin's day, really hardly any formal education, certainly no advanced education, was available to women. I mean, Jane Austen herself basically educated herself out of her father's library. Right. She wasn't going to go to Oxford or Cambridge. Um, so there's all this, there's, there's so much more to do, and that takes a long time. But also, yes, for sure, our, the whole way that we understand adolescence and youth, young adulthood has really radically changed. I mean, Austin is writing before, long before the development of what we now call youth culture. And the idea that youth is this whole separate part of life where, you know, you kind of go off and assert your independence and discover your values and maybe have adventures, see the world 
literally or sort of mentally, emotionally. It becomes kind of a long, drawn-out process. Also, the whole process of seeking a mate, which is so central to all of this. I mean, Austin comes at a really interesting time because if you read, say, uh, you know, Richardson, her great predecessor in the novel, if you read Pamela, especially if you read Clarissa, which is just a generation or two earlier, half a century maybe earlier, these are young women who really don't have a lot of choice about who they can marry. Right. Um, it's not exactly an arranged marriage, in the, you know, but it's pretty close. Now, with Austin's heroines, they have some real choice. But as I said before, it has to happen fast. You can't, you know, you can't wait until you're 35. So that, that compresses the process of becoming an adult much, much more than we experience now. Well, this connects really well to my next question, which is a little bit of a shift, but not much. In your work, a recurring theme is the ability to think for yourself. You talk about that very notably in your book, Excellent Sheep, a masterpiece about higher education in America. And over the past couple of years in particular, there's a sort of popular rhetoric that's developed around the idea of thinking for yourself and doing your own research. And one of the things that <laughs> most people love about Elizabeth Bennett is that she's independent in some way. Yet, I'm not sure that we have the same thing in mind when we admire Elizabeth's independent spirit and her perceptiveness. And so what do we really um, see that is valuable in Elizabeth's ability to think independently, to think critically? What are her weaknesses? And then related to that, I mean, what do you mean when you talk about the ability to think for yourself and the importance that that has or should have in higher education today? Right. Okay. Those are all good questions. In terms of Elizabeth, you know, I mean, the novel has barely started and she's sort of, this, this guy she's never met inflicts this kind of narcissistic injury on her. She's not good looking enough to be worth dancing with. And it stings, but, you know, especially at first, if you read the next scene, she kind of laughs it off. So immediately, I think we admire her for her ability not to have her opinion of herself dictated by other people. I think that's really powerful. And then I think we see the same thing, you know, especially when she gets, she gets stuck at the Bingleys. We see the same thing with respect to the Bingley sisters, you know, who are obviously, you know, supposedly better than her in every single respect. And she refuses to accept that system of values, I would say. She refuses. She refuses when she refuses Mr. Collins. She refuses when she stares down Lady Catherine late in the novel. So I think that that's tremendously admirable. And I think, to just jump ahead before I come back to Elizabeth, I think that's a lot of what I mean by being able to think for yourself, mm. is being able to pause when the world comes in with all its judgments, who you are, what you should do with your life, how you look, who you should marry, and say, wait a second, do I believe this? And if I don't believe it, am I willing to stand up for what I do believe? Of course, Elizabeth's big flaw, let's say, is that she's, she's kind of too clever for her own good. Right. You know, 
And of course, that, you know, that's the big, that's that big moment of self-revelation where she realizes how wrong she's been. But it's not just, it's not just an intellectual error, like, oh, I should have realized that Darcy was better than I thought and Wickham was worse than I thought, but that, um, that she has behaved, she's behaved wrong. And although it's also to her credit that it, that means so much to her in contrast to, say, her sister Lydia. So, yeah, so, I mean, like, I mean, to, I suppose to draw the lessons out more fully to the last question you asked, what does it mean for us today? I chugged a little bit when you said in the last couple of years, people talk about, you know, doing their own research. It's not that I'm against people doing their own research. It's just that that can often mean this attitude that experts are always liars and I shouldn't trust anything I hear and I am the final judge of all facts. I think that that's terribly misguided. We're not the final judge of all facts. We must, like Elizabeth, must not be too certain of ourselves. Mm. Uh, but facts and values are different things. To get back to what I was saying, facts and values are different things. And I think that we must be the final judge of what matters to us. I think that's the only way to live a life that feels like it's our life. That's really helpful. And of course, it's that self-perceptiveness that Elizabeth gains, you know, about her own shortcomings, her own failure to interpret things correctly that is so admirable and and is a dose of, you know, what we all need. And that actually reminds me of a lecture that you gave in 2009, a talk that went viral titled Solitude and Leadership. And in your lecture, you make the claim that true leaders aren't the slicksters who simply ingratiate themselves for long enough to climb up the corporate ladder, but rather are people who are capable of putting aside society's expectations, just like you talked about, and think for themselves. So do you think that Lizzie Bennett, by that definition, is a great leader or would be <laughs> a kind of leader that would shine uh, today if she were alive in 2022? I should say, for those who don't know, that that was a talk I gave at West Point. So it was to people who really were being trained to be leaders in a very direct sense. I don't think those qualities alone make you a leader. I mean, you know, a leader means being a leader. It also, you know, has sort of more specific definition, like you are in charge of making decisions for other people. But it's certainly a good question. I mean, we were talking before about how women had almost almost no educational or vocational opportunities in those days. And to think about, I've never thought about this, like who could Austin's heroines have become if they were young now, if they were young 20 years ago? And Elizabeth certainly seems like someone who could have done a lot of different things in the world. She could certainly have been a leader. I can imagine her, you know, in politics, in uh, any of the professions. Well, and of course, another factor that was central in Austin's world and continues to be central in ours, but seemingly in a different way, is money and the economy. Money is always a pressing issue that's you know on the surface or below the surface and everything that Austin writes. And her novels are often motivated by economic considerations because the lives of her characters had to be concerned about that. And we in 21st century America like to pretend that we're a classless society or that money doesn't really divide us and that we are a real meritocracy. But a lot of people would, would differ with that and say that's really not the case. 
can you talk a little bit about actually how our world today in terms of class and economic pressures is really more similar to Austin's world than we might think upon first reading? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. I mean, there's no question that the class structure in uh, early 19th century Britain was much more rigid than it is now, although it wasn't completely rigid. I think we misunderstand that. And again, in particular, there's a very strong gender component to this because Mm. women couldn't go out and make their own living. But as you say, and I talk about this in Excellent Sheep too, because it's so relevant for higher education, we have a class stratified society. There's no question about it. I mean, you'd have to be blind not to see that. And it doesn't just mean that some are rich and some are poor and some are in the middle, or that the rich are getting richer, but that social mobility, from what the economists say, social mobility has slowed considerably in recent decades. I mean, I think a big part of America's self-conception as a classless society, it was, first of all, that we didn't have an aristocracy. You know, there was nobody that you had to take, literally take your hat off to, and that's a big deal. But it was also that it was this rapidly expanding, highly fluid, highly mobile society where, you know, where you were born played a, a much smaller role in determining where you ended up than it did in Europe or probably anywhere else in the world. Not so true anymore. Not so true. By, by any means. And I think, as you say, we don't like to acknowledge this. I think we've acknowledged this more and more probably since 2008. But I think the area, you know, my sense of the way people talk and my sense of popular culture, the area where we are least inclined to acknowledge it at all has to do with uh, dating and mating, as they say, with, with our romantic choices. I think. People don't want to acknowledge the extent to which they are determined and at the very least constrained by the class that we belong to. I mean, among other things, why are parents, why are upper middle class and upper class parents especially so insanely intent on making sure their kids get into a fancy private college? I mean, they talk about wanting them to have opportunities in life, and that's for sure. But I think maybe the big dirty little secret is that it's also about who they want their kids to marry, what kind of person they want them to marry. You may not meet your spouse in college. I think these days a lot, you know, not that many people do. But you're going to meet the people who through whom you will ultimately meet your spouse, probably. That's a lot to ponder because I think you are exactly right. And these economic relationships really are largely determining of our familial relationships, both past um, and future. That actually brings me to a question where I want to return to a Jane Austen education, because in this chapter that you write on Pride and Prejudice, one of the things that you talk about so poignantly is your own family relationships. And of course, Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Bennett, as single characters and as a married couple, make for some of the most interesting reading in the novel, uh, but also very complicated because there are they are complicated characters and their relationship is, is complicated. And I think that's one of the things that Austin does so brilliantly is to show 
the complications of, of people and relationships. And you use those family dynamics to talk a little bit about your own family dynamics and in particular, your relationship with your father. Could you just share with our listeners a little bit about what you write about in that chapter, about how Pride and Prejudice illuminated some facets of your relationship with your father? Sure. You know, my dad was, uh, he was an Ivy League professor. He was also an immigrant. I come from a Jewish family. And um, all of those contributed to very high expectations that my parents, but especially my father, placed on me. I should explain that the whole story of the Jane Austen education, you know, my my encounter with Jane Austen and the lesson she taught me that helped me grow up takes place between the ages of 26 and 32 while I'm in graduate school doing a PhD in English Lit. And um, a big part of that process of growing up was, well, it sort of gets back to what we were talking about before about standing firm on your own values, which just simply means how you want to live your life. That was a lot of that process for me, is sort of learning to find the courage to talk back to my father to get out from under his shadow to say, this is what I want to do. I mean, just the fact that I was in graduate school doing a PhD in English. I mean, yeah, he was a professor. He was an engineering professor. He, there was only one choice for me and my brother growing up, and that was to be a doctor, which means there were no choices. So he was unhappy that I was in school in the first place, in that school. And um, yeah, I think, you know, I think Austin sort of helped sort of helped me find my own voice in that. I mean that we all love that line from Mr. Bennett when when he tells Elizabeth that if she accepts Mr. Collins' proposal right. of marriage, right, she has a choice to make. She can either, you know, never talk to him again or never talk to her mother again. And um, right. it's humorous and lighthearted, but what you're talking about is a very similar real life thing that we all have to do. It might not as be as, as dramatic or as difficult, but we, we just have to decide when what we're doing or not doing is right or wrong. And sometimes our parents are not right about those I was gonna say, things. Yeah. I mean, he's got a lot of problems as a father, hmm. but that statement is pretty great. And I would venture to say, I mean, I, I don't think all parents are like this, but I would venture to say that she's pretty lucky to have, have a, a parent who would say that. Right. Right. I mean, again, going back to Clarissa, you know, Clarissa is, is, I mean, one of the things it's about is it about both parents like exerting maximum pressure on this poor young woman to marry this rich jerk who she knows is a bad guy. Right. I think that that's probably more typical than to have, you know, one parent who has a, the good enough sense to recognize like this is not a good idea. Exactly. Exactly. And then, Moving in a different direction with with one final question. Like Jane Austen, you too are a writer deeply concerned with the moral imagination of our society, of the world. And like her, you too see its failings and you write about those and things and talk about them. But whereas she lived in an age that allowed her to sort of correct these failings through subtle satire... It seems that our culture today is allergic to anything that is that subtle <laughs> and also allergic to morality and to the kind of moral lessons that Austen teaches in her fiction. I mean, do you feel like that? And do you 
think that trying to sound a sort of moral alarm today is is futile, sounding against the wind? You know, I think it's complicated. You're absolutely right. It's been said that she was a moralizer without being moralistic. Hmm. I think that that's how it was put. Um, she doesn't preach. She just shows, and 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 also, I mean, her morality is about it's about being a decent person, right? Mm-hmm. It's about being attentive to the people around you. I think of Edmund in Mansfield Park, you know, coming upon Fanny sobbing away because she just left her family. And he's kind to her and he just kind of sits her down and, and asks her to tell him about her family. You know, to, it's, it's such a touching moment to just tell your story. That's such a human, it's one of the, one of the best things you can do for a human being is to see them as a human being and to be open to listening to their story. Or, of course, Miss Bates and Emma and Mr. Knightley in Emma. And, you know, you don't make fun of someone like Miss Bates. You, you know, you think about how vulnerable she is and, and you protect her. I mean, that's the kind of morality she preaches. And it's, it's so beautiful and um, so sort of just kind of every day. You know what I mean? Right. I think, I think it's more complicated, though, than to say that today we don't want to hear about morality. Because I actually think there's, um, there's some very intense moralizing going on in the world now. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm sort of on the left side of the political spectrum. So I see what goes on on my side, which is the sense that um, there are more and more things you're not allowed to say, not allowed to talk about. How you're supposed to think about yourself is more and more prescriptive and has to do with you know, your gender, your race, and so forth. My sense is that on the other side of the of the aisle, there's similar kind of very, very intense, very heavily patrolled kind of normative expectations, moral expectations. Absolutely. I know. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I mean, I think what you said about, you know, we sort of reject morality. I think that that, would, that was true, you know, in the 60s and mm. for a time afterwards. But I think... I think we've seen the return. It's just, it's not at all in the Jane Austen spirit. As you say, first of all, it's not subtle. It's not loving, right? I mean, Austen, you know, it's very condemnatory. It's very preachy. It's very moralizing. Um, Maybe that's, maybe that's, uh, you know, you're helping me think out loud here, but maybe that's, that's the big thing that's missing. And one of the things that we love in Austin is that she, she does, I mean, I think she treats her characters the way she wants her characters to treat each other, which is to say sort of gently and understandingly and lovingly. Perhaps we have forgotten what true morality is, and we certainly have forgotten what love is. I think you're absolutely right. I really think, I mean, this sounds so, I'm, I'm, a, I'm wary of sounding sentimental, but I, I, many times I've thought as I think about sort of the political situation in our country, that um, we, we, need to, we need to remember how to love each other. Meaning, you know, meaning just how to see the humanity in other people and not see them as an enemy, either the enemy on the other side of the aisle or the enemy on your side of the aisle. We need to see people as human beings. And I think Austin is really a a terrific resource for us to enable us to do that. I couldn't agree more. I think you've captured the beauty and the value of, of her art perfectly. Thank you very much. Thanks. I really enjoyed this conversation. 
I began this podcast by talking about how Jane Austen isn't just an insightful, delightful storyteller. Austen is a profound moral philosopher, too. As William DeResowitz stated so helpfully, though, we don't always recognize morality as morality. It's easy to confuse denouncing or distancing or even hating for being moral. Real morality cannot be separated from real love. Austen's works teach and delight us so richly because her love for her characters, her society, and her world, despite all its evils and shortcomings, shines through. In this way, Jane really is a lot like Jesus. And so, listeners, you must allow me, in the words of Mr. Darcy, to tell you how ardently I admire and love you for joining me on this first season of Jane and Jesus. It's been a wild, fun ride, and I can't wait to have you join me again for season two. Jane and Jesus is a Soul Shop original, hosted by me, Karen Swallow Pryor. Our producer is Josh Cross, and our editor is Robert Scaramuccia. For more Jane and Jesus content, subscribe to our newsletter at janeandjesus.substack.com and follow us on Twitter at Jane and Jesus. Please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends and family.